Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Stephen Greenhouse was the labor and workplace reporter for the New York Times for 19 years. He's retired now, but he hasn't stopped writing about labor, not by a long shot. His last book, The Big Squeeze, written 10 years ago, is a detailed report on how American workers are being abused by their bosses. Corporations are freezing wages, replacing long-term employees with contractors and subcontractors and freelancers to whom they have no responsibilities. And where full-time employees are to be found, bosses are replacing pensions with 401ks, trimming down paid holidays, vacations, and sick days, pressuring workers to do more per hour, forcing complaints out of the court and into arbitration, including non-compete clauses, not to mention offshoring jobs to countries with fewer labor or environmental protections and cheaper wages. In the 10 years since then, corporations haven't exactly changed their tune. But the labor movement has. There's been a surge in organizing from the service industry to Silicon Valley, and we can see it in places like the Fight for 15, the Red for Ed teacher strikes, walkouts at Google and Wayfair, the list goes on. Right now, for instance, there's a huge campaign at airports nationwide led by airline catering workers making poverty wages. 11,000 of them across 28 cities voted to authorize a strike. Where did this momentum come from? Where's it going? In his new book, Beaten Down, Worked Up, Stephen Greenhouse tries to answer that question. Why did worker power decline so much over the past 50 years? And what can we do to rekindle that collective power? He joins us in the studio. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. It's great to be here. I think it's instructive to compare the United States to countries like Germany, France, and the UK, because labor organizing kicked off around the same time, but with drastically different results today. At a unionized McDonald's in Denmark, for instance, you can make $20 an hour, but in the U.S. you're stuck with a minimum wage and zero union protections. Not to mention that in the U.S., labor wasn't able to win paid parental leave or sick or vacation leave that even approaches the standards of Europe. Why not? Why were France and Germany and other European countries able to seize those when U.S. labor power wasn't? That's, that's a great question. So we talk about American exceptionalism. And in my book, I really hammer this concept that the United States suffers from 
anti-worker exceptionalism because in many ways workers here have fewer rights than elsewhere. And when we talk about American exceptionalism more broadly, we talk sometimes about America being the good guy and the cop of the world defending democracy. We also talk about American exceptionalism, that why was socialism weaker in the United States than in European nations? And I think you know, one of the ramifications of socialism, the left being so weak in American history, is that corporations have far more sway over the government and workers have far less sway over the government. That's why, you know, the United States is the only industrialized nation that doesn't have paid maternity leave or paid parental leave. The only other nations in the world that don't have paid maternity leave are Papua New Guinea, Suriname, and a few Pacific Island states. The United States is the only industrial nation that doesn't have paid sick days, that doesn't guarantee workers uh, vacation, whether paid or unpaid. And in the European Union's 28 nations, every worker is guaranteed at least four weeks uh, vacation. And other aspects of this anti-worker exceptionalism is uh, of the 36 industrialized nations in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, we have the lowest minimum wage as a percentage of the median wage, and we have the second highest uh, ratio of low-wage workers. Uh, the only country that tops us of the 36 is Latvia. So, I mean, all this shows that you know, workers in the United States, you know, maybe our wages are pretty good compared to other countries, but we don't have a lot of basic rights, and and low-wage workers are really getting uh, squeezed. Corporate profits as a percentage of overall national income is at its highest level since World War II, and worker compensation, wages, and benefits is at its lowest level since World War II. So something is broken, I submit. Right. Well, and wages are lower than they were in 1973, accounting for inflation. It's like pretty nutty. But I mean, as you pointed out earlier, part of the problem too is that fewer people are enrolling in unions. Why is that? And and do you feel like part of it has to do with our historical amnesia about labor wins and what unions have done? So, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this book is I think, you know, in my, to my mind, far too many people I meet, far too many Americans, especially younger Americans, just know very, very little about labor unions and what they achieved. I'm not saying labor unions are great. I write about the corruption, the discrimination against women, the horrible discrimination against African Americans, against Chinese immigrants, against uh, Latinos, but you know, unions have done a lot, arguably more than any other institution, to to lift workers. And there's that wonderful bumper sticker: "Unions, the folks that brought you the weekend." And I think a lot of people don't understand that these nice things they have—the 40-hour work week, uh, employer-sponsored health care, uh, overtime, weekends—they were the product of long struggle. I have a I, I think a nice chapter in my book about a strike in 1909 called The Uprising of the 20,000 by 20,000, actually 30, 40,000 female garment workers in New York. And at the time, it was the largest strike by women in American history. And these women complained that they used to have to work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., that they wouldn't see the sun. They'd have to pay for the needle and thread. Sometimes they'd have to pay for drinking water. Sometimes they'd have to rent the chairs they sat on in the factory. And if you thought you know, the current era is the only time that, that you know, male bosses sexually harassed women. No, it was happening back in 1909, too. But one of the big demands of the strike was a 52-hour work week. And I think, you know, so many Americans think, you know, the 40-hour work week was handed down to them by God, but it really was the source of struggle. And I think, you know, 
Uh, you know, there's been all these studies showing that Americans are working more and more hours than they used to 20, 30 years ago. And I think there's been backsliding. And I submit that one reason is that unions have grown weaker. And in the book, I really try to show you know, uh, how un unions grew and how worker power grew and how that really helped improve the lot of millions of workers with an emphasis on how individual workers use their agency to really get things going, to bring other workers along with them. And, and out of the initial agency by and heroism by some of these workers, it really got the ball rolling and hundred, you know, hundreds and thousands of workers joined them. And it you know, turned from individual agency to mass solidarity. And that's how movements grow. You know, you know, two, three years ago, I'd be talking to people and they'd say, oh, labor is dead. It's dead in the water. There's not much hope for it. And then West Virginia just like, you know, exploded almost not, not quite spontaneous generation. It's kind of when you treat people bad enough, especially self-respecting, fairly secure people like teachers, they're going to, you know, get up off their knees and really fight. And I think in many ways, the teachers were the, you know, the, you know, the vanguard in the effort against years and years of austerity and tax cutting and, and, and giving tax breaks to corporations. They said that might be great for the corporations, that might be great for the rich, it might be great for Republicans to get reelected, but it ain't good for teachers, it ain't good for students, and we, the teachers, not only going to fight for ourselves to improve our salaries, but things have gotten really bad for the students. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, like, something is in the air, because Red for Ed is not the only movement. Adjunct professors, graduate Adjunct, students. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and you also have, you know, glimmers in uh, gig workers unionizing at the freelancers union, um, and then the fight for 15. So, I mean, what what is the something in the air? Is it just that we've, like, hit the nadir of corporate treatment of workers, or is there something else at work? Uh, good question. So, uh, I was talking to some friends in New England. So there was this big strike in New England a few months ago, the stop and stop and shop supermarkets. Yeah, yeah. So oftentimes when there are strikes, especially at a, at a place like supermarkets, consumers, you know, say, "Oh, this this stinks. This really gets in my way. This is going to make it harder for me to shop." But you know, some people I spoke of there said there was huge community solidarity backing the union. So I think people are really feeling that, you know, th you know, to borrow Donald Trump's phrase, that the system is rigged. And that corporations, you know, they have record profits, stock markets at a record level, plus they just got this humongous tax cut, even though they already had record profits. And I think a lot of people feel that workers are getting the shaft. Public opinion polls show that unions have the highest approval rating in 15 years, 62% according to the Gallup poll. And there's been a, a big study by folks at MIT saying that 46% of non-union workers say they would join a union tomorrow if they could. And that's up from around 30, 32% in the 1990s. So I think people feel, this, you know, workers feel the system isn't working as well for them and they are more favorable to unions. But as I said, only 6.4% of private sector workers are in unions. So there's some disconnect there. To my mind, the major reason the unionization rate has fallen so much, not just globalization wiping out manufacturing jobs, but that American corporations have become so adept and aggressive at beating back at fighting and killing unions. And, and I have this line in the book that's become, you know, that folks everywhere are like quoting that, you know, no other, in no other nation do corporations fight so hard to beat back unions as in the United States. And that's true. And, you know, in Europe, in Japan, in Australia, in New Zealand, in South Korea, Canada, companies kind of work hand, maybe they don't love unions, but they work hand in hand in unions. They realize that unions are 
an accepted, important entity that represents the interests of workers. But it, I think a lot of American companies just see unions as a horrible enemy and that we got to annihilate them, extirpate them. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do white collar workers fit into this? Because you talked a little bit about, um, you know, we have a lot of stories about how cushy jobs are at places like Facebook or Google, for instance. And yet now you have, um, you know, white collar Wayfair employees banding together to protest the fact that Wayfair was contracting with ICE or, you know, Google employees saying that they don't want the company to cooperate with U.S. government or Chinese government efforts to create, you know, surveillance technology. So how do these different categories of work almost intersect in the labor movement? So with white-collar workers, in my view, there are like several different strands, several different things going on. One is what we saw with Me Too and sexual harassment. A lot of white-collar women were treated horribly. They were scared to speak up. You know, one of the big issues I focus on in the book is the lack of so-called worker voice, the ability of workers to speak up and to be listened to. And I think one of the reasons there's been such a Me Too explosion after the initial Harvey Weinstein uh, revelations is that there's, you know, there's been so much harassment in so many workplaces and so many women have been scared to speak up or even when they spoke up, management didn't listen to them. And people finally, finally, finally felt, white-collar workers finally felt emboldened to do something. So that's one strand of what's happening. Another strand is generally labor movements, you know, worker power is used only to improve pay and to improve their working conditions and to get vacations and maybe more parental leave. But now we're seeing these, you know, we don't like that uh, Amazon or Google are helping ICE. We don't like that, you know, you have this contract to help in, in this war. And there have been these serious protests that we really haven't seen before in that way in American history. And and that's, I mean, that reflects somewhat that these workers feel secure enough about their jobs that they're willing to protest something that doesn't directly affect their paycheck and their treatment at work, but their sense of worth and what their the company they're proud in is doing. And they want to be fairly pure and ethical and they don't like it when their companies are doing something they view as unethical. And like, to my mind, it's admirable that they're willing to stand up. Well, what about collaborations between these different levels? Because, you know, it used to be that a company sort of did one thing. You know, it was like a mining company and you had management and then you had workers. But at a place like Google or Facebook, you have, you know, you have the people who build the software, sure, but you also have, um, you know, cleaning crews, you have bus drivers, you have all kinds of workers at various levels of pay who are working for the same company or contracted by people who work for the same company. So have you seen any collaboration in that way? Or how do you feel like that's happening? Uh, Again, very good question. So a little. So uh, I was going to include this in my book, but I have so much about California in my book, I decided, (laughs) you know, I write about uh, the Los Angeles teacher strike and how it's an unusual model of union community cooperation, how the union wasn't focused so much on increasing its own pay, but getting you know more school nurses and more librarians and more social workers and more green space and smaller class sizes. And I write about this wonderful labor management partnership, Kaisa Permanente, that where workers and union and management work closely together to improve service, to improve care, to cut costs, and to increase pay. And Silicon Valley, there's been, you know, one of the most successful unionization efforts in the country among the 
cafeteria workers at Facebook and Google mm-hmm. and the shuttle bus drivers who drive from San Francisco to to, uh, to Silicon Valley. And there's been some support by the white-collar workers, probably not as much as we might have liked, but there's been some some support. And um, But you know, the... You know, the unions that did that organizing drive really have their act together. And, and you know, again, when you're dealing with some of the most uh, profitable, most value, you know, high-value you know, high uh, companies in the world, it's not hard to make them look bad. Like, why are you paying seven twenty-five or eight twenty-five or nine twenty-five an hour when you're worth, you know, gazillions of gazillions of dollars? Right. Why does this Amazon fulfillment center not have air conditioning? Why are they not being paid minimum wage? How much do you earn, Jeff Bezos? So you know, so one of the things you know, one of the things I learned, and I'm going to uh, you know trump at the cause of, of the media for a second. So, so as unions have grown weaker, mm-hmm. it's harder for workers to speak up. It's harder workers to protest. And I think as a result, it's you know newspapers and and TV and radio that has shined a light somewhat on some of the real scandals. Uh, for instance, you mentioned uh, Amazon, you know, in the Lehigh Valley in in Pennsylvania. You know, the workers there are like worker bees. They run around insanely, you know, picking goods off the shelves. And it was sometimes literally over 100 degrees inside. And so many people fainted and got dehydrated that, that Amazon literally had ambulances waiting outside because so many people were dropping each day. So the ambulance would take them to the hospital or would work to rehydrate them. And it was only when a terrific reporter in the Lehigh Valley did a story shedding light on that that Amazon said, Hey, you know, maybe we should we should uh, install air conditioners there, and and you know the media really plays an important watchdog role on workplace matters, and let's hope it continues to do so. Crazily, you know, when I was at the, I was the labor and workplace reporter for the New York Times for 19 years, and there was a year or two when I was the only standing remaining full time labor and workplace reporter at a daily newspaper. The Washington Post no longer had the LA Times, no longer had the Chicago Tribune, no longer had the Boston Globe, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, so. You know, I don't know if that, you know, it made me feel like I was becoming an extinct species or maybe even a brontosaurus. Uh, but fortunately, since the Great Recession, since that really shined a light on how badly some workers were squeezed, more and more places are covering labor issues. Well, and a lot of those newsrooms are unionizing as well. So, yes, yes. you know, you might think that they could be related. You know, so you asked about white-collar workers. So, you know, one of the exciting corners in labor right now is a lot of white collar workers are unionizing mm-hmm. um, in you know digital media in, in you know, the, the most anti-union newspaper in the country famously anti-union the LA Times has unionized the Chicago Tribune considered the second most anti-union paper in the country they unionized the you know slate and and Vox and Vice and the New Yorker is unionized the New York magazine is unionized and the New Republic so there's that's been going on. Adjunct professors, you know, 2,800 adjunct professors at Miami Dade College uh, have just unionized. You know, tons of graduate students are unionizing. So a lot of white collar workers are unionizing. So people ask, why is this going on? What's going on? Right. Unionization drives might be on the rise, but retaliation against that is still quite easy. You know, uh, outlets like Gothamist unionized and then were promptly shut down by their owners. And that's been true of, you know, small shops or small businesses whose workers have unionized or tried to organize and then been fired. So given those threats and given the measly percentage of people who are unionized today, how do you think workers can regain their power? How do you think that we can win back that voice that has been stomped on for decades now? 
You've won. You've asked a sixty-four trillion dollar question. <laughs> that that's that's the very tough question that I really wrestle with. And in the book, I try to say, you know, there's there should be an effort to rebuild union power, but it's extremely hard to make unions grow because there's such massive employer opposition. I talk about how over fifty percent of the times when workers seek to unionize, management threatens to close the operation. And management often says, you know, you might even end up with lower wages and worse benefits if you unionize. So, you know, and 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 management has 24-7 access to workers. You know, they, they show anti-union videos in the lunchroom, in the break room. They require workers to attend these, you know, sophisticated lectures by high-paid anti-union consultants. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court has ruled that companies have every right to bar union organizers from even setting foot into the parking lot. You know, there was a Supreme Court case where union organizers were putting flyers on the windshields of cars, and the union said, you have to give union organizers some access. And the Supreme Court said, no, property rights, Trump worker rights. So things are really out, really out of balance right now. So the essence of your question, how do you rebuild worker power when unions are so weak? So you know, an accelerated route to giving workers more power and more voice is like letting workers elect members to the corporate board of directors. And, and in Germany, workers elect just under 50% of the directors on corporate supervisory boards. And I think that's one reason you know, Germany treats its workers much better. They invest much more in training. They haven't offshored, outsourced nearly as much as American corporations. Elizabeth Warren has proposed letting workers elect 40% of board members. Tammy Baldwin has said 33%. In my book, I make what I hope is a strong case for public financing of elections. The Carl Roves of the world, the Grover Norquist of the world, you know, talk about big labor, that labor is some big, bad, you know, humongous force in politics. Well, you know, there are statistics showing that in the 2015-2016 election cycle, corporations donated $3.2 trillion to candidates, whereas... Uh, Unions gave only $213 million, less than one-sixteenth as much. And in lobbying in Washington, corporations spend just under $3 billion a year, while unions spend less than one-sixtieth, just $48 million a year. So there's a huge disproportion of, of power in what's happening in Washington. So you wonder, why should you know, the Koch brothers or the Walton family or Sheldon Adelson have eight gazillion times as much voice in our politics as a public school teacher or a carpenter or a hair salon worker. We have to stand up and fight to help workers who are really, really having a hard time nowadays. Labor history is long and instructive, and not even Stephen Greenhouse was able to fit it all into his new book, Beaten Down, Worked Up. There's a little bit from every sector in there. GM employees, Uber drivers, school workers, farm workers, hotel housekeepers, and service workers of every kind. Not to mention the historical wins and losses that informed the present. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 